you know, nobody knows that's the problem. It's probably a genetics plus maybe in utero changes. We just don't know. Yeah. And uh, so, Ke so Kennedy is wrong about that. He's wrong about cell phones. You know, he's, oh, if you hold this phone up here, you get cancer in your, in your brain over here. No, this is not true. That has never been, we've looked into this, that the, the radiation coming from a phone, the energy coming out of the phone is so weak. It doesn't even penetrate the skull much less get into the brain. It's not mm -hmm. possible to even, even if you held it right next to the brain, the energy coming from it isn't enough to break the chemical bonds that would trigger a mutation in a cell that would then become cancerous. It, it can't happen, much less, you know, 5G, but we heard this with 4G, we heard this with 3G, you know, oh, this is gonna cause all yeah. kinds of immune system breakdown. No, it never happens. The energy dissipates with the square of the distance. So if you're twice as, Far, you're 100 feet away, now you're 200 feet away, the energy is is four times lower, not not two times lower, but four times lower than it was. And uh, and so it, it, it's virtually indetectable. I mean, you wouldn't even know you're near a cell phone tower. People claim that they can detect, but they can't. Welcome to Santa Barbara Talks with Josh Molina. It's such a pleasure today to be here with Michael Shermer, who actually is one of my favorite people that I had no idea lived in Santa Barbara, but somebody who I followed for a number of years because of Skeptic Magazine. And I have subscribed on and off over the years or pick it up at the grocery store. And uh, Michael is just this like world-renowned, science-based, author, writer, and skeptic. So it's such a pleasure to be able to, to talk well, to you. Thank you for saying that. How, how are you doing today? Oh, everything is great. I'm in Santa Barbara. How could it not be great? <laughs> yes, yes. Well, we, we moved here in 2016 and I'm never going back. Yes, yes. This is a great place uh, to live. The weather's always awesome. I wanted to talk to you, Michael. You have this incredible book, Conspiracy, Why the Rational Believe the Irrational, and it's just one of your latest where you basically uh, kind of challenge a lot of what we're experiencing right now in our culture, which is this rise of conspiracy theory beliefs. And I wanted to just dive right in and talk to you because I recently did a podcast with a doomer and he is a self-described doomer. And he basically says, you know, he acknowledges that climate change is real and that <clears throat> humans have been destroying the planet through overuse of fossil fuels. But he goes a step farther and says, it's too late, it's over. And I wanted to talk to you because I know you've written about this subject, you've talked about this subject, and he calls it the big green lie, Elliot Jacobson. He lives in town and he's got a big Twitter following and you know, sort of, it's just sort of interesting. It's a little bit of a controversial podcast, but you as somebody who follows climate change and you're very aware of what is happening, is it too late for humans to save the planet for humans as, he states, or what, what should we be doing from your scientific perspective? Yeah. Oh boy, okay, right. Uh, well, first of all, yeah, global warming is real. It's human caused. Uh, it is an issue we should deal with. It's not the end of the world. It's not the apocalypse, it's not doomsday. You don't have to buy your uh, shelter in Idaho and, 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 uh, and store up guns and gold and all that stuff. Uh, now that's gonna happen. Uh, I mean, one of the things that uh, we've learned from past predictions of doom and gloom from different problems is that our species is really good at solving problems. 
and uh, and we and we do it. I mean, if you just look at the ozone hole, you know, back in the 80s, that was a big thing. And then by the 90s, we had solved that problem by taking the CFCs out of uh, aerosols and things like that. Now, cl climate change is a much bigger problem, but we can do it technologically. And the problem with doing it the, the way most environmentalists want to do it, which is to say cutting back on uh, the use of fossil fuels is not fair to the developing world. It's always the kind of, let's say, limousine liberals that want to do this. That is, you know, we have our riches now. Uh, and so now you guys have to stop using fossil fuels, you guys being the poor people. And uh, that's just not fair. I mean, the problem with air pollution and tuberculosis and other um, health issues in the developing world is that they're burning dirty fuels. I mean, everything from, you know, cow pies to wood and coal and, you know, the, the idea that they're going to have, you know, nuclear power and sustainable um, solar panel arrays and things like that is just not realistic. You have to be wealthy to develop those technologies. So the best thing we could do is to develop the, uh, the third world into the first world by making them rich. And also people that are poor don't care about what the climate's going to be like a century from now. I mean, they're worried about where their next meal is going to come from, right? So it's really, it's a first world problem that we should deal with, but it's not going to be the end of the world, not even remotely close. And by the way, that's not the only threat. You know, of course, we've been talking about nuclear weapons for 50 years as an existential threat, but the latest one is AI. You know, <laughs> artificial intelligence is going to end the world. Yeah. Okay. You know, the problem of being my age at 68 with institutional memory, I've been doing Skeptic Magazine for 30 years, is we've heard this over and over and, and it never comes true. So it's like, you know what, maybe don't make gloom and doom predictions about the end of the world because it's probably not going to happen. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting. One of the things I wanted to ask you also about was the big green lie, sort of this trade-off that they say is as we develop solar energy, wind energy, as we try to reduce dependence on fossil fuels, we actually are creating another problem. We're creating these vast desert wastelands of uh, wind energy, solar energy, and we're actually further contributing to climate change. Uh, one of his comments was, well, think about the, the mining that has to go into looking for uh, you know, the cobalt or these things that we use for our mm. electric batteries yeah. for our cars. Do you think about that at all in terms of, of the trade-offs or is it, again, just a first world problem? Well, okay, I always like to quote Thomas Sowell here. There are no solutions. There's just trade-offs. You know, you want this, then you're going to have to have that. And, you know, there's no utopia. It's just protopia. That is, we make tomorrow slightly better than today. Three steps forward, two steps back. Every solution that we find, every problem we find a solution to is going to generate more problems. You got to find more solutions. The worst thing you want to do is go back. Let's go back to being hunter gatherers, you know, where the earth can sustain, uh, you know, a few million people. Well, that's not going to happen. And what, what are you going to do with the other 7.8 billion people? You know, just let them die. I mean, it's just such an anti human, inhumane philosophy. No. Uh, all of these problems uh, are soluble. You know, it, it's, it's like I like to say, we're never going to run out of oil. People hear this and go, what? How can you say that? It's a finite amount. We're a globe. It's going to run out. No, supply and demand. Just think of it as an economic problem. You know, as the 
the supplies diminish, the price will go up astronomically and then no one will buy the last barrel of oil. We will find solutions to this. We already are. Um, you know, again, institutional memory. I remember, uh, you know, electric cars had been being developed my entire adult life, but they just never caught on. They've been around since the 1920s, actually. In the 1920s, there were more electric cars in New York City than there were fossil fuel burning cars. But for various reasons, the battery technology wasn't there, and the automobile industry, along with the oil industry, became so efficient that it was just super cheap to just go with the uh, internal combustion engine. But Elon changed all that. So, okay, now it's cool. And, you know, he's no longer – I drive a Tesla, but he's no longer the coolest car on the road. You know, I've seen Mercedes and BMW electric cars that are just unbelievably great. <laughs> it's like, well, I might have to go to one of these next, you know. <laughs> and that's capitalism. You know, it's just competition. Everybody sees the writing on the wall. You know, in a few decades, there won't be any more internal combustion engine cars. They're going to be all electric. Same thing with trucks and taxis and so on. So that'll be the end of that problem. Now, that's not solving the total global warming problem because that's maybe only 6% of emissions. Really, we have to back to where does the electricity come from? When I plug in my Tesla, you know, the electricity doesn't come from the electricity ferry out of the wall. Right. You know, it's got to be generated somewhere. And most of that's, you know, coal burning um, mm. electric power stations. So we got to have nuclear. You know, I mean, I'm all in favor of renewables like solar and wind and geothermal and so on. But you got to add nuclear into the equation. And the problem with nuclear is that people freak out about it psychologically, and there's kind of a social taboo against it. Therefore, there's we've not allowed the industry to develop like all other industries, which are allowed to fail and develop and try stuff, experiment, let's try this and that, and you end up with the best system. You know, there, there are alternative technologies for nuclear power yeah. stations, but it's so heavily regulated that they can't run the experiments and try 50 different different kinds of technologies. And if we could take the break off and let that happen, um, that's definitely the way to go. I mean, it's really, you know, it's, it, there are no emission standards. And people go, oh, what, you know, Three Mile Island and Chernobyl and all this stuff. Well, first of all, nobody died in, in Three Mile Island, not one person. Mm -hmm. Fukushima, most, you know, almost all the deaths and problems were caused not by the nuclear power station, but by the tsunami and the waves. Right. And Chernobyl, okay, this was a poorly designed, you know, Soviet Cold War era, poorly, you know, very impoverished, you know, system and so on and so forth. That's never going to happen again. Even by the Russians, they're not going to do that again. So, uh, and, and by the way, that the Three Mile Island incident happened uh, two weeks after the film The China Syndrome came out with Jane Fonda. Mm. So people conflate this in their mind, you know, decades later. Oh, my God. three, Yeah, it wasn't, a tr you know, Three Mile Island. Wasn't that this big meltdown? I saw mm. a movie about that. It's like, no, you saw a drama. <laughs> they made this. Uh, nothing to do with Three Mile They filmed it the year before. Anyway, right. so that's that's my solution is go forward, better technology. Let's get everybody rich. Let's get it, make everybody's life better. Don't hold people back. Yeah. Okay. I wanted to ask you about somebody who's been in the news lately and you know, you're somebody you've been on a variety of podcasts, Joe Rogan, you have your own popular podcast. And so I want to kind of talk to you about somebody who, I don't know if you've met him or not, but Robert Kennedy Jr. is getting all of these, all this attention right now. He's going to run for president and he's doing the talk show sort of circuit. And what's his big deal, right? What's his big controversial thing? He's talking about vaccines. Okay. And so I've watched him in a couple of these podcasts and, he says he's not anti-vaccine. However, he does think there's a link between 
vaccines and autism. And we know that this is a very controversial issue among some people, but there's Republicans, there's conservatives who really like this guy, you know, even though he's a Democrat and, you know, he's a Kennedy. And so he, he's resonating with them. Uh, people are concerned that he's going to disrupt everything for, for Joe Biden. But how is it we live in this age where this presidential candidate is out there saying that vaccines can cause autism? He's saying that cell phone radiation can lead to cancer. These are things you have written about and talked about as not being correct. So yeah. can you can you talk about this? I mean, yeah, why? He's, yeah, he's wrong about all that. I don't know Robert Kennedy. I've never yeah. met him. I, I've been on uh, Rogan's podcast seven times. Uh, I don't have any objections like so many people do to Joe talking to anybody he wants. Yeah. You know, he's just doing his thing. Uh, and if you expect a 60 minutes kind of piece where you have a team of researchers that prep the host and they in, do this investigation for months at a time and you see the you know eight minute clip of the final version, that isn't what Joe does. He just sits down, he doesn't do very much prep and he just talks to people. Mm -hmm. All right, so you just gotta know that's what I'm getting. Mm -hmm. And you're gonna have to do your own fact checking for the most part. Now Joe did to his credit, uh, you know, offer $100,000 to, you know, Robert Hotetz to debate Kennedy yeah. on his show. And Hotetz has been on Rogan's show before. Right. So he knows him. He knows Joe's a stand-up guy. He's not going to, like, cut him off. And, and it's not like you said Kennedy's working the talk shows. He's not doing any talk shows. They won't have him. Mm -hmm. He's doing podcasts. Podcasts, yes. Yeah. This is going to be the media platform for the 2024 election, I think. Mm -hmm. The twenty. 16 and 2020 was Twitter and Instagram, I guess, for 2020. Uh, this one's going to be podcast. And it, it is a game changer because, like, for example, Kennedy, you know, he, he works in, you know, 20 different areas, you know, foreign policy, U.S. military policy, the history of the Cold War, this and that, not just the vaccine stuff. And you listen to the whole three hours, like, oh, this guy actually knows a lot of, about a lot of different things. He's yeah. pretty sharp. Why is he so wrong about right. the, the, these other things on vaccines? I don't know. He's just, everybody's got a thing. And it's it, it's really unfortunate because he has been told, you are wrong and here's why. Mm. You know, we don't really need him to debate Hotets to find out where Kennedy is wrong. It's all over the internet. Mm. There are tons of videos, articles. We've published quite a bit, not, not targeting him directly. Yeah. He's just reflecting this long anti-vax thing that began back in the 90s with this single paper that was published in The Lancet uh, that claimed there was a link between vaccines and autism. That uh, paper was since has been withdrawn, declared to be fraudulent. It was. Um, and there was conflicts of interest. Uh, the guy was paid to by these by vaccine companies to find a certain outcome. No, by his own vaccine company that he had invested in. Anyway, it just goes on and on. It, it, it's a terrible story. But the problem is, is we don't know the cause of autism. So where there's a vacuum of causal explanation, everybody and their brother with their alternative theories it, it just steps into the fray and says, I know what causes autism. So, and Kenny's not the only one. There's tons of other uh, autism theories, yeah. you know, and, and treatments for autism that had to do with diet and, cleansing and all these kind of toxins that come from other, not just vaccines, but from other sources. So there's a dozen different theories that we've dealt with in Skeptic. And, you know, nobody knows that's the problem. It's probably a genetics plus maybe in utero changes. We just don't know. Yeah. And uh, so 
so Kennedy is wrong about that. He's wrong about cell phones. You know, he says, oh, if you hold this phone up here, you get cancer in your in your brain over here. No, this is not true. That has never been. We've looked into this. The, the, the radiation coming from a phone, the energy coming out of the phone is so weak. It doesn't even penetrate the skull, much less get into the brain. It's not mm -hmm. possible to even even if you held it right next to the brain, the energy coming from it isn't enough to break the chemical bonds that would trigger a mutation in a cell that would then become cancerous. It, it can't happen, much less, you know, 5G. But we heard this with 4G. We heard this with 3G. You know, oh, this is going to cause all right. kinds of immune system breakdown. No, it never happens. The energy dissipates with the square of the distance. So if you're twice as far, you're 100 feet away. Now you're 200 feet away. The energy is is four times lower, not not two times lower, but four times lower than it was. And uh, and so it, it, it's virtually indetectable. I mean, you wouldn't even know you're near a cell phone tower. People claim that they can detect, but they can't. So these are all flaws. It's been pointed out to him over and over and over. So I'm disappointed because in other areas, he seems like a rational, reasonable, smart guy. But you know, I don't know. Some people have a thing in their you know head. It's like religion. You know, if you're a Catholic, I'm not going to talk you out of being a Catholic. You know, because, you know, I'm an atheist. I have all these books on religion and so on. But that's it. You're a cat. You know, so it could be something like that for Kennedy. Um, you know, but to give him credit, he has some interesting ideas about foreign policy. You know, why do we have 800 to 900 military bases around the world? Yeah, that's a good question. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, what's going on with that? Why are we spending a trillion dollars? Military industrial complex, he rants about that. And, but he points out, yeah, how come we've been in wars pretty much every year for the last 75 years since the end of World War II? Why is that? Mm -hmm. And, you know, now other Republicans like Mike Pence, he's got his arguments. And that's another case for the podcast. Uh, Pence was on with Jordan Peterson. Uh, for an hour and a half. And it's like, oh, wow, I thought that guy was a complete dolt. I'd never even heard him speak more than 30 seconds. And wow, he went on for an and he was pretty sharp. I'm like, okay, this is going to be an interesting campaign. Yeah. You know? And in terms of how could somebody wild like Kennedy become a viable candidate, I just have one word for you, Trump. <laughs> right. How did this happen? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, this is American right. politics. Yeah, that's that's a good example. Do you think Kennedy is doing this for, for political purposes because he knows that it will fire up a, a certain base that will vote for him. I have to think he knows better, right? I don't know. Yeah. I, do you mean he would take votes away from Biden and split the party and therefore the Republicans will win? Well, I mean, on the autism thing, do you think that he deep down doesn't believe that, but knows? No, that I think he believes. No, no, I no. think he believes it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I, you know, in terms of vaccines, I think most people are not on board with going as far as he does. You know, there's some questions about the COVID-19 vaccine. Does it really, you know, there was, it's going to prevent uh, you getting infected. No, it, it was never intended to do that. I'm not sure how that whole story got started. But most people, you know, get their kids vaccinated, for example. They, they just do because they know they should do that. You, know, you, just, you just have to see some of the newsreels from the 40s and 50s of polio. You know, it's like, oh, my God, yeah, I'm getting my kid vaccinated right. <laughs> or the measles or mumps and rubella, all that. So I think most people don't go, don't go that far. What, where, where Kennedy tags people's, I think, natural skepticism is about big pharma, big tobacco, mm -hmm. big chemical industries. They do capture the regulatory state. They do bribe people. They really they do lie. Mm -hmm. We know this. So when he says, you know, big tobacco lied about tobacco being addictive. They did. 
<laughs> for decades. The jury is still out. What jury? Where? There's no jury. <laughs> and it's not out, right? And uh, same thing with climate change. Although, interestingly, on Rogan, I noticed, you know, Kennedy's going on and on. You can't always trust the experts, you know, and, you know, there's no consensus on this. The jury is still out. We're not sure. You know, we should just collect more data. You know, we don't want to jump to any conclusions, you know, and he's going on about vaccines that are you know, been tested for a century, you know, and then Joe asked him about climate change. Oh, well, you know, you got to trust the scientific consensus on this story's over. The jury's in, you know, it's, it's real and human caused, and it's going to be a big problem. It's like, wait a minute. I thought you just said, don't trust the experts. Right, right. <laughs> so you see, everybody yeah. has their, their thing, right? A weird little odd belief. Yeah. Can I talk to you a little bit about the, the podcast versus the talk show and the mainstream media? You, you know, Joe Rogan gets a bad reputation. Those podcasts get a bad reputation because, you know, he's just putting questions out there and he's not challenging and he's just more being like a verbal learner and processor. And the traditional media says, oh, you're giving these people a platform. Why are you giving these people a platform? Because they're going to unfairly influence people who are watching. They're going to believe what you believe. And that's going to be harmful to us as a society, as a culture. And... You know, it, it should come through our traditional gatekeepers in the media because, you know, they're trained journalists. Joe Rogan's not a journalist. Can you talk about that? Is there a downside to podcasts and people just being able to give people a platform and then all of a sudden anyone believes that and it's unchecked and unchallenged? Is are there any benefits of having that traditional old school media kind of? Well, edit? sure. I mean, fact checking, editing you know, kind of have journalistic standards is important. And we still have that. That hasn't disappeared. I mean, Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, Washington Post, and so on, CNN, Fox News, <laughs> ABC, NBC, CBS, PBS, most of the stuff that gets reported there. If you take out the editorial sec pages in the newspapers, the, the stories are virtually identical. Yeah, so I'm not worried about that. In terms of the platforms, well, okay, Joe has the world's biggest platform now. Uh, platforming Kennedy. He has a platform. He's running for president. Everybody knows who he's like the most famous people in the world. Yeah. You know, like where did this Kennedy Joe gave this guy a platform and now people know who he is. Of course we all knew who Kennedy was. Right. So it's not like he needed Joe and he's already been on half a dozen podcasts since Joe that also Barry Weiss, Jordan Peterson uh, and so on. He's got, you know, millions of people have seen him and, uh, so I don't really see any problem. I'm a kind of a free speech uh, fundamentalist. I think just let people have their say. I mean, I'll talk to Holocaust deniers, creationists, anybody really, neo-Nazis. Why do you believe what you believe? Give me, what's your best argument? Give it to me. Mm -hmm. Now, one reason I think people don't want to debate Kennedy, or this Hotets guy doesn't, mm -hmm. is because, and I've done this a lot with a lot of different, you know, guns and climate and vaccines and creationism, Holocaust, you know, I've done a lot of different debates. It's a lot of work yeah. because it's not enough to be an expert in your area. I saw this when I was younger and before I started debating. Uh, I would watch a professional evolutionary biologist debate a creationist. They think it's about evolutionary biology. It's not. It's mm. creationism have their own set of arguments, their own strategies. They use to knock holes in the mainstream theory. They go anomaly chasing. If you can't explain this one little thing right there, then I got you. And my theory is right, right? Or the 9-11 truthers. You know, if you can't explain how this passport ended up here down from one of the, you know, then it was an inside job. Building seven. <laughs> Building seven. <laughs> right. 
you know, and I didn't know anything about why buildings fall. You know, how come the World Trade Center buildings fell in their footprint? I thought, yeah, they should just go like that, right? No, they don't go like that. <laughs> All you got to do is just talk to somebody that destroys buildings, demolishes buildings for a living, which I did. It's like, oh, I see. And, you know, people hear these little memes and they, you know, it fell almost at the speed of gravity, you know, gravity and real time. It's like, but that is how it happens. And, and on and on. So the point is that if you're not prepared for each and every anomaly that the person brings up, then you could look bad. So Hotetz knows his his biology and science epidemiology of vaccines for sure. But the fear is that Ken, if you just watch Kennedy for three hours on Rogan, he has got study after study. Well, Joe, you know, there was this study done in 1976 published in this particular journal here yeah. that found that, you know, so-and-so, the, the, the vaccines cause it. And Joe's like, oh, wow, I, I've never heard of that. You know, <laughs> Jamie, look that up. And they Google it. You know, and so if you're a hotest, you're sitting there, it's like, okay, what's the answer to that? If he doesn't know, then it's right. like, ah, yeah. <laughs> right. So there is some risk he to that. To be perfect. Yeah, yeah, really. I mean, when I debated uh, Graham Hancock on Rogan, mm -hmm. uh, almost four hours of, you know, Gobekli Tepe and ancient uh, civilizations and the Easter Island statues and the Great Pyramid and the Sphinx and, you know, the water erosion on the back of the Sphinx. How come it looks like, you know, I really had I spent weeks preparing for that. Yeah. It's just so I'd have most answers to. Now he still came up with a few things that I didn't know, but that's part of the problem. If and, and to Joe's credit, he gets hammered a lot, but he did. He brought me on to do this. He's offered a hundred thousand. You know, this is over. The offer is now over two million dollars. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Other people have said, "Yeah, I'll go. I'll put in a hundred thousand." Right. And, and to me, it's astonishing that Hotets doesn't take this up. He could take two million dollars and give it to the charity that makes those vaccines for poor people that he's always talking about. Why wouldn't you do that? Right. And he's like, oh, I don't want a platform. He already has a platform. That's not that's not the reason. Right. You know, it's like you just don't want to do the work and look up every one of those studies. Well, yeah. why not? Yeah. So I, that bothers me a little bit. Uh, again, it's not a nobody. Like, uh, yeah, it's like and even when Joe had uh, Robert Malone on talking about cardio, oh. uh, uh, cardio, is it um, myocarditis yeah. uh, as a result of vaccines yeah. and. I, I did wish he had somebody else on at the same time, but later he had other people on and and he, he's reasonably good about that. But again, he, he's doing something different than, say, the New York Times or CBS would do. And why would these guys go on that podcast? Because they get a platform for as much time as they want. Right. You know, I mean, it's like because I'm old enough to in my earliest books, I just made the rounds of the talk shows and did book tours city to city. You're on the morning show and the afternoon show and the evening show, and you get like three, four minutes. Right. It's just, you go on a podcast, you get three, four hours yeah. to talk about conspiracies. Let's get into it. And, uh, you know, Joe and I are going on about, you know, what, what about the magic bullet and how did it do this? Let's look at the bullet. You know, we went on and on for like an hour just about JFK. Right. <laughs> you know, and where else, where else in the history of media could that ever be done? Yeah, I think there's a lot of... <clears throat> elitism when it comes to judging these podcasts like oh this person is not that so they shouldn't even be asking those questions but so many of us learn by just verbal processing and joe rogan is a little bit at times kind of deer in the headlights but other times he has really good questions that everybody would be watching or will be wanting to ask i wanted to ask you though like for me growing up like i love the idea of aliens right and oh, ufos yeah. and you know all yeah, these... i have a whole bookcase of ufo books here <laughs> <laughs> right like the roswell thing i yes. mean the amount of time i spent you know going through 
encyclopedias or yeah, reference here's, books. Here's Roswell, Dreamland, Area 51, <laughs> Roswell. Oh, yeah. 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 And, and, and trying to <laughs> trying to figure that out, like maybe it was real or not. And I think it's, wouldn't you say that kind of like every, every little kid, uh, kind of maybe boys, we grow up with sort of this like, idea dream that there's there's something else there's something else going on that we haven't been told uh and and you know whether it's it's ufos or it's aliens or you know if it's not a god it's like oh there's another universe or something like i think we all kind of have that as kids and then we grow up and we we learn we you know that's not real that's not true but did you have that when you were growing oh, up were you oh, I was one a of these big people? star trek fan uh -huh. You know, uh, the show began when I was in sixth grade, right? 1966, sixth grade, on my birthday, September 8th. And, uh, yeah, you know, it's just the Enterprise and they're going for you know, strange new worlds. Oh, my God. Yeah, science fiction. You know, I, I love science fiction. And so when I started college, I took a course in astronomy, just like, well, I don't know what to take. Uh, this looks good. I love Star Trek. And that was kind of my entry into science. And I think there is an impulse there that's deeper that has to do with like a, almost a religious impulse. The idea that there's somebody out there that's way more powerful than us. Mm -hmm. And maybe they even know we're here. Mm -hmm. You know, this is, you know, this is kind of the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. The idea that aliens are out there, they've come here. And if we did encounter them, the truth is if we did encounter them, they would be vastly more superior to us. First of all, they wouldn't be behind us because they wouldn't get here. They wouldn't be able to build spaceships or whatever. Um, and so the only way we'd encounter a civilization less developed than us is if we went to some planet and there they are, right? Mm -hmm. The prime directive in Star Trek, oh, the primitive right. people, give them a laser gun, give them a phaser and see what they do, <laughs> right? Yeah. So, uh, but how, how much more advanced would, would they be? You know, it wouldn't be like 10 years or 100 years because evolution doesn't happen in some parallel way on different planets. You know, it would just be randomly 100,000 years ahead of us or a million years ahead of us. And if you just extrapolate, like Moore's Law, the doubling of computing power every one to two years for the last 50 years, just, just take that out 50,000 years. You know, what would the technological advancements be? They'd be astonishing. It'd be like holding a cell phone to a Neanderthal going here. How about that? And they'd be like, whoa, <laughs> you guys are gods, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so I think if we did encounter aliens, they would be godlike. So I do think the search and the impulse that, to, to think that, that we're being visited or they're out there somewhere is like religion in a good way. You know, that's what religion is all about. Most religions have a godhead, you know, and, and a theme, underlying theme that we're not alone because it's a little existentially frightening to think, you know, this is it. It's just us. Mm. Well, it could be. So, you know, we should do the right thing, take care of our planet, take care of each other just in case and not count on somebody to come rescue us, but we should search because, yeah. So to the ufologists, you know, I'm I'm open minded, but, you know, I also understand how evidence works. You can't just make claims like we've been visited, like the recent round, you know, of this guy, David Grush, who said, I talked to people who saw the machine, touched the machine, knows that, we, you know, we've been visited. All right. Who are these people? Can't tell you. <laughs> can't tell us. OK. And then I had another guest, Michael Schellenberger, who as a journalist who looked up and so he talked to some other people. Not the same people, but other people that said similar things to the people that talked to David Grush. And I thought, okay, well, I have Michael on my podcast. Who are these people? Can't tell you. Mm -hmm. uh, can't tell. Marco Rubio, you know, hey, I talked to these people too. Who are they? Can't tell you. It's like, come on. Enough stories about people who know people who know people who said they saw us. 
can we at some point say, there it is. Here it is. Everybody, you look at it. You look at it. Take a picture of it. We dissect it. Back engineer it. You know, here it is. Like the Chinese spy balloon. Right. You know, when that story first broke, it's like, China, come on, really? Let's take a look at it. You know, and the first pictures were a little grainy. It's like, ah, maybe. You know, and then the next day, some sharper pictures. The next day, the jet goes up there and flies right above it and takes pictures and video. It's like, oh, okay, this thing is real. For yeah. sure, 100%. Yeah. And there, you'll notice, nobody asked about or talked about the credentials of the pilot and how decorated he is and how trustworthy a, a person he is. Who cares? It, it, there's the video. There's the pictures. And then you shoot it down. There's the debris. <laughs> right. That's what it would take for me to say aliens have visited here. Mm -hmm. The equivalent of the Chinese Bible. In right. Well, this, they have a new name for it, what is um, unidentified aerial objects. And we've now have Phenomena, UAP. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so we have these military people who are saying, I've, I've seen it, right? And I, you know, I saw it and it went this way and it was super fast. And I know you talked about this and it's always this like grainy little light or footage yeah. going across. We seem to have a little bit more acceptance as a society that, that, oh, there could be something out there. Whereas maybe 10 years ago, 20 years ago, if you say you believe in UFOs, you're like a weirdo. Yeah. What do you think of these, these um, unidentified aerial phenomenon? Most of them are uh, artifacts of the camera, the video. They're, again, they're grainy, blurry, grainy videos, blurry photographs. You know, everybody has one of these smartphones in their pocket, a high resolution camera. Come on, where are these? You know, there should be thousands of really clear, <laughs> sharp, unmistakable photos and videos of these things. Where are these? And, you know, these pilots say, hey, we see these things all the time. All the time? Well, how about get a high resolution photograph next time? Now, there are some going around online this last week, but they're fake. <laughs> they're CGI, really fake, uh, but, you know, amusing. Uh, you know, that's going to be part of the problem with ChatGPT and the, the whole GPT-4 and the ability to generate, uh, you know, artificial videos and photographs. That's going to make my job even harder. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to debunk that. So take me back to you as, uh, you know, a kid growing up. Obviously, you probably weren't born a, a skeptic, right? You used yeah, to Star Trek, but... You, at some point, decided you were going to, you know, go this route. You're an atheist. Uh, most people believe in some kind of God. You know, you, you say you're an atheist, people immediately judge you like, oh, you know, you're, you're one of those. Was there ever a time when you were not a skeptic, when you were somebody who was maybe religious or somebody who believed that, oh, you know, maybe... Maybe the aliens did build the pyramids kind of thing. <laughs> yes, I did. For, uh, for, so first of all, I was a born-again evangelical Christian for seven years. I went to Pepperdine University, Church of Christ School. Mm -hmm. and I was going to study theology. I wanted to be a, co a college professor and be a theologian and all that stuff. Anyway, long story short, I ended up not doing that, got into science, and that eventually that led to my uh, uh, leaving my religion. But I wasn't raised religious. My parents weren't religious. It was just something I took up with uh, under peer influence in the 70s. So. Um, so I understand the religious mindset. I understand all the, the, the evangelical arguments for God's existence and not, you know, whether Jesus was really resurrected or not. I know all those arguments. And, um, you know, so and then when I was in graduate school, I was also interested in the paranormal and the supernatural mm -hmm. and, you know, ESP and psychic stuff and hypnosis, altered states of consciousness, you know, the soul and all this stuff. And, and it was a pretty hot topic. Uri Geller was bending spoons and, you know, all the new age <laughs> movement was huge in the 70s and 80s. And I, I liked it. I was into it. 
But then I, you know, I, stuck, because I got training in science. It's like, yeah, but how do you know it's actually true? I mean, really true. Not just this is fun and entertaining, but is it, is it really true? And, you know, when you really look at the evidence for these claims, the, the evidence is pretty wanting. It's just terrible. Mm-hmm. Not the kind of evidence that anybody would accept if it was some scientific theory. So that led me to be skeptical simply because most ideas, even in science, are wrong. They're incorrect. Scientists themselves are always spitballing ideas, and you know, most of them are wrong. So being a skeptic is not, you know, it's it's not just an automatic uh, denial of all knowledge. I believe lots of things. Um, it's that the proportioning, apportioning your belief and confidence based on the evidence. You know, so more evidence, more confidence; less evidence, less confidence. As we say, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Mm-hmm. So if it's a really extraordinary claim, like we have been visited by extraterrestrials, you hear this all the time. It's like, hang on, this would be one of the greatest discoveries ever. Not just the history of science, but the history of all of humanity. We are not alone. All right, what do you got? Show it to me, because this is spectacular. Well, I got this Grady video, and if you kind of use your imagination, you can sort of see it. Looks like this, like, no, nah, sorry. I got to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, we need real evidence. You mentioned you were evangelical Christian. Were you saved? Like, did you have? Oh the yes, I, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. I did. The did whole you thing. feel anything? I like, did. Uh, yeah, oh yeah. What did, What did it feel like? It felt like, uh, you know, like a like the Holy Spirit was, you know, moving inside me. Like a, a warmth or an energy. Yes, or? yeah, kind of like that. Yeah. yeah. Just, well, you know, just sort of a I don't know a positive feeling. Yeah. Yeah, but it wasn't like a Pentecostal thing where you're writhing on the ground and stuff and talking in tongues. Nothing like that. Uh, but I had gone to a Presbyterian church, which is a little more conservative than the Pentecostals, right? right. Uh, it was a much more intellectual process for me. And, but I was interested in, in all these topics that theologians deal with, free will and determinism, problem of evil, is there existence for God, God's existence, arguments, uh, and, and so on. And I went at, at Pepperdine, took classes in the Old Testament, the New Testament, the life of Jesus, the writings of C.S. Lewis. I read everything C.S. Lewis wrote. You know, so I'm, yeah, I... I, I was interested in this. Subject. It is an interesting subject. So when you had that energy, that feeling in you, like when you're looking back now, what was that then? Oh, just psychology of expectation, the power of expectation. We know this from lots of different things. Uh, in the same way that some atheist secularist, uh, you know, like social justice activist or a Marxist terrorist or whatever, are totally emotionally engaged in moralizing about this cause that they have. You know, it's just like a religion. Right. So it's sort of. I mean, you see these Antifa people out, you know, burning things down. They're totally emotionally engaged. That's not religion exactly, but it's the same kind of internal um, psychological mechanisms at work. Right. Are there any conspiracy theories that you you do kind of believe, or you still are unsure? I mean, I, I saw you know Oswald killed Kennedy, right? That's yep. That happened, and you know, nine eleven is exactly what they explained. Well, nine eleven was a conspiracy. I don't know why people stumble okay. on this. Nineteen guys plotting to fly planes <laughs> into buildings without telling us ahead of time. That is a conspiracy. Yeah. They pulled it off. Mm-hmm. Right? The Japanese attacking Pearl Harbor. That was a conspiracy, right? Uh, you know, Hitler going against uh, Stalin. You know, breaking the the treaties they had and invading Russia. That was a conspiracy, and. and Stalin was very paranoid, but he missed that one. <laughs> so the point of my book is that it's what I call constructive conspiracism. Enough conspiracy theories turn out to be true that it pays to believe more are true than actually are just in case, as opposed to the other kind of error where you miss real conspiracies. 
you should have seen that one coming. So mm -hmm. better to err on the side of caution. That's my argument. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the FBI, the CIA, they have conspired to do all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. Government agencies over the last 50 years have lied to us. They've done secret things that Congress didn't know about, never approved, that were unconstitutional, illegal. I mean, you know, the FBI had a program called the COINTELPRO, counterintelligence program, in which they spied on U.S. citizens, including Martin Luther King Jr. They taped his his shenanigans with women in hotel rooms. They taped his sex and blackmailed him. Mm. Our government did that. And you know who signed off on that? Not just uh, um, J. Edgar Hoover, but Robert Kennedy himself signed off on the wiretapping and secretly recording of Martin Luther King. Now, mm. today, everybody's like, you know, Dr. King is like a statue. He's like a god. And, and Robert F. Kennedy, oh, my God, he's... You know, this great, you know, when you're assassinated, you're automatically elevated to some other you know, status, I guess. But, you know, that's that's un unbelievable. That's illegal. You know, the Pentagon Papers revealed to what extent all the administrations were lying to the American public. Afghanistan Papers showed how much, you know, Rumsfeld and Bush and Bitt were lying about how it was going in Afghanistan. They just do this. They, I think you get into power and people just just change. Mm. You know, I'm just going to lie to everybody. Now I'm going to conspire to do stuff. Not just government agents, corporations. Mm -hmm. I mentioned big pharma and, you know, big tobacco. They do. They lie. You know, opioids are not addictive. <laughs> they knew they were addictive. We have the paper trail. They knew. They just didn't care. Right. Those are conspiracies. So, they, yeah, they absolutely happen all the time. Writing the book, I thought, God darn. <laughs> really? Right. I keep reading. Really, our own government assassinated this foreign leader. We were in on that. What? Mm -hmm. You know, and these, you know, these South American dictatorships. You know, you got the communist dictator and the fascist dictator, right? You know, we back the fascist dictators because at least they'll be friendlier to American business interests in those countries. Uh, whereas the communists, if they win, they're just going to nationalize and take the company. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we're the CIA's down there rigging these elections, backing, you know, the one leader over the other. We're not supposed to do that. Yeah. You know, Congress didn't approve this, you know, so, yeah, there's a lot. Do you think the, the uh, Trump, the, the 2020 election, that there was any irregularities? No, voting or no, that was, sense? no, that's been examined, including by people who would want to find that, like Attorney General Bill Barr. Mm -hmm. Trump appointed him. He's a lifelong Republican. He supported Trump on pretty much everything. And he said, you know what? We looked into it. There's just nothing there. You know, and Trump filed, what, 30-something uh, lawsuits? And every single one of the judges said, show me what you got. And they did. And they got, no, nope, you got nothing. We're not even going to have a trial. Yeah. So that pretty much ended it for everybody except mega, you know, hardcore mega people and Trump, of course. But, um, you know, in terms of the Russian collusion, you know, it looks like they did not collude with Trump or the, his campaign, but they did muck up, you know, they did get into our election system and tried to, well, whatever, stir shit up <laughs> and just cause problems. They do that. We know they do that. And in this podcast I told you about with Mike Pence, he talked about this. He goes, I met Putin and uh, and I told him, you know, Mr. President, you know, we know what you did in 2016. Don't ever do that again. And mm -hmm. he, he said, Putin said, I don't understand English. <laughs> it's like, oh, OK, <laughs> translator. Uh, the election, Mr. President. Oh, oh, no, no, no. We had nothing to do with that. You know, it's like, yeah, OK. <laughs> so, yeah, that kind of stuff goes on, but not uh, not anything that tilts the election. I, our system is reasonably uh, trustworthy, I think. What do you think of sort of this state we're in right now where 
you know, and I see it in journalism, I teach journalism and the state of the media is that what, what I've sort of seen is this kind of like gradual lack of, um, of um, willingness to understand other people's perspectives, this ability to sit down and talk to somebody and say, oh, you know, you believe this way on this political issue, or you believe this way on this, you know, moral issue. Do you think we're going to turn the tide here? Or are we just going to kind of always be now in this sort of case where if you criticize me, I'm going to try to cancel you as opposed to <laughs> yeah. you just say what you say and I can disagree with you. Yeah. Yeah. It's gotten more corrosive and polarized mainly because of social media yeah. and the kind of real time attacks that people can experience. Whereas it was harder in the past before the internet to do that. There is a, a you know, an impulse in our psychology to, um, tribalize, you know, to be in a little silo with you and your fellow thinkers that think alike, you know, everybody does that. And, um, you know, and it takes some training or some kind of, kind of effort to put in it. Like, I'm going to go talk to somebody that doesn't agree with me and just see what that's like. That's hard to do. Most mm -hmm. people don't want to do it or try steel manning somebody's argument, as we call it, not straw manning where you set up a, an argument that they're not actually making. And then you refute that actually state in your own words, what you think the other person believes. You know, like, why does somebody, uh, why is somebody pro-life in the abortion issue? Can you articulate their best arguments? You know, mm -hmm. and I've asked my students who are all pro-choice, you know, can they do that? They, they can't. They don't yeah. actually know what the arguments are. Mm -hmm. Like, well, then how good is your pro-choice position? If you don't even know what the others, half the country disagrees with you. Right. Do you know what their arguments are? No. Okay. Well, <laughs> you know, then your arguments are not very good. Your position is not very sound, right? So, you know, but that takes training and it doesn't come naturally. And. No, we have a moralization impulse. We want to, we want justice. We, we want right instead of wrong. And we want to correct wrong doing and so on. Everybody feels that way. Uh, so it's easy to then not just disagree with somebody, but to demonize them. That's a problem. Right. One of the, the things that I've seen in skeptic magazine, and I'll see if you could talk a little bit about is, you know, we legalized cannabis in California. It's this huge, you know, industry and, it's still illegal in some states and, you know, federally it's not legal. Now we're seeing this like psychedelic mushroom sort of acceptance, this movement, you know, where like people are, mm -hmm. oh, well, you know, mushrooms will open your brain and your mind and supernatural experience. Right. And, you know, they, they, they're natural. And this is what Jesus used to do. You know, these are what these people used to do a long time ago. And it's so close to the earth. And, and it's one of these things that, feels like a lot of nonsense but these people well, say, well i don't yeah i don't know i've never personally done this yeah. you know and rogan's been after me to you know try ayahuasca shimmer it's a <laughs> life changer magic mushroom uh -huh. okay yeah maybe uh, i don't personally have experience with that i don't use pot although i ride my bike through carpenteria and i get high now <laughs> it's like oh whoa what's that smell oh i know what that is <laughs> remember from high school uh but i i think the research is pretty clear now that it does have some uh, salubrious effects for like PTSD, for anxiety, mm -hmm. just, you know, just kind of general psychological issues that people have. Uh, the microdosing, you know, that sort of thing seems to help. I see Aaron Rodgers was going on at some conference about altered states, about ayahuasca changes life. Mm -hmm. Wow, Aaron Rodgers? Okay. I threw more touchdown passes when I took ayahuasca. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so I don't know. You know, I, I think probably there's something to that. It's unfortunate that, you know, this the discovery of these 
things in the 1950s, it wasn't long before they got abused and the government steps in to regulate it and criminalize it. And then that was the end of the research. You know, we could have been way ahead had we started back then real scientific research instead of just criminalizing it and then no one wanted to get involved. So I think there could be something to it, not just not, not opening the doors of perception to some other universe. I don't think that's true. I think it's all just up here. Yeah. But that that's not trivial. You know, if it, everything is up here, right? So if your emotions are negative, or you're having problems, it is up there where the problems are. So if that helps, then, you know, why not? Yeah. You know, I'm somebody, most of my life, I've, I've not been logical in the sense of, you know, I know the logical thing to do, but as a journalist, it's sort of an arts thing. You got to think about all these different perspectives. You know, I enjoyed reading Skeptic because it helps me see, oh, well, yeah, it's really not that. It's a very simple explanation for for why, why that is. And I'm just sort of wondering, you know, you and you live your life here are you logical all the time i mean is there anything <laughs> where you're you're like you know i'm not going to do that uh, i'm just going to think this way or i mean when i'm playing with my kid or i'm riding my bike with my buddies i'm just enjoying life or whatever yeah. i'm not thinking about rationality and stuff mm-hmm. like that you know i guess things like love emotions you know those are slightly different than a, a pure reasoning process right um, you know, David Hume famously said, you know, uh, that, that reason is the slave to the passions or emotions, as we would call them today. What he meant was that uh, reason is the best tools we have to, to figure out how to achieve your goals. But what the goal is that you want, that's going to be the product of your passions or your emotions. Like, you know, how should, what, you know, what career should I pick? Well, you can kind of rationalize, reason your way to figuring that out. But, you know, having a passion for a career, like this is really what I want to do. I'm just so passionate. That you just have to kind of feel. Like, you know, you just look around the landscape when you're a student and go, what is it I want to study or major? What kind of business do I want to open? You know, that uh, rationality is not going to get you there. You know, it's mm-hmm. going to be what do I Or falling in love with somebody. You can't just make a list. I mean, people do make lists. <laughs> you know, pros and cons of this person or that person. But that's not really what's going to do it. It's going to be, you know, that's the one. I just know it. I just have a feeling. And that that's, I think, our emotions, our passions. Yeah. <clears throat> that, that's a good answer because you can't really be logical and everything. A couple more things before I let you go is uh, I always have these debates with my son about free will. He's mm. very much a, um, well, he's 17, so, you know, he reads a lot. And, you know, he's, <laughs> he's an atheist and, and you know, he, he has strong views on things. But he always tells me we don't have free will. He says, because everything you do, you do because it has some benefit to you. Even if you're self-sacrificing, you are still doing something that you're going to get some enjoyment out of and that human beings don't have free will. And he would explain it much greater than that. But I know you've, you've written about this topic. Um, yeah. I mean, do we have free will? Is, yeah. You know, what, what is your take? The problem is depend- how you define these terms. Yeah. Uh, so part of it is a linguistic um issue if the universe is causal and determined which it is we know from physics and the laws of nature um except for quantum effects you know everything is every effect has a cause if you go all the way back you know then the whole universe is determined from the big bang it was determined 13.8 billion years ago that you and i would be sitting here today but this bookcase with the books in that particular order as i said them there you know and so on and not some other way okay 
Well, part of the problem with that is that you and I are part of the causal net of the universe, and we're aware of the effects and interactions that we're having with the world. And so we can actually choose to go left instead of right, and that decision there will alter the future a little bit. And the, our participation in the causal net makes us not truly free in what's called libertarian free will, which doesn't exist. That, that's the assumption that there's somebody else, like a ghost of the machine, making the decisions for you. Mm. There, there's no little homunculus up there. There's no mini-me yeah. up there. Uh, even, if, even if there were a little mini-me making the decisions freely, there would then be a mini-me inside, mini-mini-me inside mini-me inside you making the decisions. So that doesn't get us there. What it is is just that kind of a recognition of participating in the world and that the choices you make, you know, you're confronted with multiple things every moment. You know, should I go this way, this way? Should I eat this, that? You know, and that's not predictable. Um, there's no computer that's going to calculate this. Now, there are these experiments in which these neuroscientists can put the EEG cap on and, and, and tell you before you know that you're going to push the left button rather than the right button. Or you're going to choose the chicken rather than the steak. Um, and so on. But, but when they say that, we saw it on the EEG reading before you were consciously aware of it. That's a little bit of a, of a misdirection. The EEGs are reading the, um, uh, um, the cortex, the, sorry, I'm spacing out on the, uh, on the parts of the cortex that run your muscles, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and so the decision is you've already made the decision somewhere below that process. Mm -hmm. That signal goes up and says, okay, I'm going to move my arm and pick this one instead of that one. So the neuroscientist is reading this higher level, the lower level in which the decision is made by you. Even if it's unconscious, it's still you making the decision. So I know it's a naughty issue. No one's completely satisfied with this. Some of my best friends are determinists and they have great arguments. Some of my best friends are compatibilists. They believe there is something like free will. They have good arguments. I'm not a professional philosopher, but I come down on the side of compatibilism. I do think we have some kind of volition. We make choices and the choices are real because you'll never know what the causes were and no one will know. You know, no computer could, you know, you know kind of, this is why we don't have self-driving cars, by the way, yet. It's way, way harder. Uh, of a problem, and none of the AI systems currently in use, I'm told, will ever be able to solve the problem mm -hmm. uh, of driving. Just simply driving, there's just the, the, the number of the degrees of freedom of things that could happen is so vast that no computer will ever mm -hmm. solve that problem. It has to be okay. So how is it we apes can do it <laughs> reasonably well with you know 50,000 or so a year dying? Uh, so we're not great at it, but we're you know not horrible. Uh, and it's because we don't really understand how our brains work to then back engineer the brain and say, okay, I'm going to build a computer that can do what the brain does. Mm -hmm. That's why that hasn't happened yet. This is, this is what my computer AI friends tell me. <laughs> do, is intuition real? Intuition is real in the sense it's a rapid cognition. That is, there's a lot of a process, information processing that goes on subconsciously. Mm -hmm. And then what bubbles up is just kind of a feeling. It just, just takes raw emotions like hunger. You know, are you actually doing any kind of calculations about which kinds of foods and the calorie, uh, you know, value of an apple versus a banana? Or something? No, you're just like, you know, I really have a craving today for this, you know, so that or I'm just hungry at this particular time. So this is just your body's way of, of getting you to do something 
without having to do all the background calculations. You know, like if you go play baseball and you run for a fly ball and the arc, the baseball's arcing in a particular way. You're not doing any calculations of calculus and, you know, trajectories. And then I should, I should move at this speed at that distance and put my arm out and catch the ball. It just happens by the fact that natural selection is designed our sensory apparatus and our motor, the motor cortex, that's it, uh, to do all that without us having to be aware of it. Because if you had, if you were aware of all this stuff, you'd never even get out of bed. It's like, okay, now he's moving his left foot. Now he's moving his right foot. Oh, here he goes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, you just, you don't need that. But that idea that, oh, I have a bad feeling about driving down this street here. Yes, well, there's probably, you probably, have a good reason for that, particularly those kinds of things, threats. Human intuition about potential threats is usually pretty good. Mm -hmm. Uh, This this is a book called The Gift of Fear. Mm -hmm. Like, listen to your fears because you're probably picking up on something. You're not consciously aware of it. Like, something about this neighborhood, I don't know. I I can't quite put my finger on it, but it's not vibing it. Women are especially good at this because women have to be more risk averse because they're smaller and uh, weaker than men. They're they're more likely to be harmed physically Mm -hmm. than men, raped, sexually assaulted, murdered, and so on. It's just um, or men against with other men have to be very risk averse, like in prisons, things like that, gangs. Um, So there, the intuition, the fear, the emotion of fear, is really wired up by evolution to design us to you know really pick up cues. Mm without doing the calculations. You don't even need to be aware of it. Just like, you know what? I'm just going to get out of this situation. I feel good about this. So you should listen to your gut then sometimes. Yes, right. Not in Vegas when you're gambling. (laughs) Our intuitions about probabilities are terrible. (laughs) But but other things, fear seems to be a good one. And love, right? I mean, you know, most, well, sort of, not lust. (laughs) That can trick, especially guys. I'm going to marry her. Hang on. (laughs) Maybe date for at least another week. (laughs) So um, I guess just as we wrap up, you know, I find you really fascinating. Your work is amazing for somebody like me who for so many years has wanted to believe in a lot of these things, right? Because it's so cool to think there's something else out there. I used to watch that uh, that show in the 80s or whatever it was called, In Search of. In Search of Leonard Nemo, yes. I've seen every one of those episodes. You know, and I remember watching that as a kid. It's like, oh, the Nazca lines. It's like the Nazca lines, they have to be real because you can only see that from above, you know. Easter Island statues, all that stuff. It's very romantic. It is. It is. And so part of reading Skeptic is sort of learning to let go of Hmm. some of these deeply held sort of feelings that you've had. And I think that's part of maturity is like, I can hold on to this or I can say, oh, well, there is kind of a, a logical explanation for it. And so I just kind of want to end with, well, why do you do what you do? Like, you know, of all the mm. things you could do, all things you could use your brain power for, why is it so important for you to be able to you know, share this information with, with people mm. in their culture and say, because you know, there's always going to, no matter what you say, there's always going to be people who are going to say, like, you know, oh, he's wrong, you know, but you still do it, you know. Well, you should see my my mailbox today. I was on uh, <laughs> Coast to Coast last night at midnight with oh. George Norrie, you know, talking <laughs> UFOs and aliens and conspiracies, JFK, the whole thing. And most of, most of the mail is pretty harsh. <laughs> right. Yeah. I post them on Twitter because they're kind of amusing, actually. 
I do it because I'm passionate about it. I'm interested in the subjects. I, I truly love reading about the latest JFK conspiracy theory or the latest alien UAP stuff. I, 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 I would be, see people say, oh, you just don't want there to be aliens. No, I, I would be thrilled. Mm -hmm. If we actually made contact with another civilization, I would just be stunned and delighted and just like, oh, my God, let's just go there. Let's talk contact with them and let's find out. You know, because it would be, again, I said they'd be ahead of us by a lot. How did they get through their version of the Cold War or global warming or whatever their problems we have? How did they solve those problems if they have a civilization? This would be great. I'm not afraid of any of that. Or if it turns out there's an afterlife, there's a God in an afterlife, and you know, I wake up there, I'm like, oh, my gosh. You know, I would just say, oh, I was wrong. Mm -hmm. It happens. <laughs> That's okay. Right. So you do it out of curiosity. Curiosity and passion and there, there's a niche for it. You know, yeah. the, the, pu the public wants to know, well, what do scientists think about this particular thing? Right. And why don't they believe this when these other people seem to believe it passionately? How come most scientists are skeptical of UFOs, for example? Well, I'll tell you why. <laughs> you know, here's why. Boom, boom, boom. Here's how science works. Here's the kind of evidence we need. And so on. And say, so, oh, I see. Yeah, you so. ever lose an argument? No. Uh, well, yeah, <laughs> uh, probably. <laughs> Although if I knew it, then I wouldn't lose because I would change my mind. Let's see if uh -huh. I was really wrong. I, I don't want to be wrong. I want to be, I want to just know it's true. I don't, you know, I'm not really political or ideological uh, too much. I just want to know what's true. Right. Okay. Well, Michael Shermer, I All really right. appreciate your time. All and, right. Uh, okay. This great opportunity to see the headquarters of Skeptic The Magazine. Nerve Center. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's such a pleasure because I always saw you as this, person who was not living, you know, five <laughs> miles away from me. So, right. so it's great. Well, thanks. All, all right. For your Thank time. you. All right. right. Take care.